the job of a leader through uncertain times is to add more truth in the world. And truth is not, is not spinning. Truth is here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. And so I've seen this multiple times at startups where you get out of an all hands and it's like, the feeling is like, things are great. And it's like, how, what happened? Why did we just, we blew that messaging. Things are not great. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. Today, we're so excited to introduce you to David Hanrahan. David is the chief people officer at Flair. This was a good one, Nolan. I have known David for years and years. I mean, he's kind of like a brother at this point. And I call him like the professor. I don't know. He, he's just always been so like thoughtful and cerebral around HR topics and leading teams and company culture. He just puts it all together with EA and Twitter, onto Zendesk, Niantic, Eventbrite. I mean, these are amazing companies that he's been a part of. And it was it was great to talk to him about how he applied all that through his journey. You're exactly right that David is cerebral. And I love David because he's no fluff and no bullshit. We got into some really interesting discussions around how he thinks about compensation and how it should be entirely around top performers. I loved his his discussion around his personal experience with burnout and how he needed to take time back to reset. I, I, I don't find most people are as authentic as David. Yeah. He just, he just kind of is what it is and just question, answer, question, answer, and has a sense of humor along the way. So it's really entertaining, but he was very transparent about how he changed too yeah. in his HR career from early on and how he would push his agenda and, and approach his work and how he's kind of came over the hump and thinks about that pretty differently. You can tell how comfortable David is in his skin by how authentic he is. And I just appreciate him being in the seat and still being okay with getting into the juicier and meatier topics. And I, I just think he is one of the best yeah. people at the job. Yeah, agreed. So without further ado, here's David. David, thanks for joining me and Kelly today. We're super excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. All right. I want to start with the burnout question and people ops. Like, There's a lot of conversation around people leaders feeling burnt out post-COVID my question is, do you feel like people leaders have gotten a little soft? Um, yes. <laughs> um, I, I can, I can, I can speak from my experience. I def, I definitely got soft. I, I left my last gig cause I was burnt out and I said, there's something wrong here. I, um, I told my boss, um, in a one-on-one -on -one, one day, um, two, about two years ago, literally two years ago where I said, you know what? I think I'm done. And she said, what do you mean you're done? Are you done with this topic we're talking about? And I'm like, no, I, I think I'm done with my career. Like in the moment, it was just like a light bulb moment of like, I just, I don't have anything left in the tank. And now looking back on it at that time, what was floating around me was CPO burnout. And I'm like, started thinking about to myself, like I'm burnt out. This is like, I'm, I'm in that group. I'm in this group. And it was sort of self-perpetuating in a sense. 
And I stepped away from the work. I remember I told my wife after the call, I'm like, I think I just resigned. She's like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I think I'm going to like meditate and like mountain bike and stuff. So speaking of soft, like I was like, I was definitely. Silent retreats. Making, yeah, silent retreats. Well, I remember your LinkedIn post. You were doing film photography. Yes. I took I took film classes. I um, I just, I kind of, um, and what I would say is for me, it was, the time was super impactful to get back to the mode I think I'm in right now, which is like, I feel like for lack of better words, a little bit more hard edge. Like I feel a little bit more like I'm fired up. I feel like I'm, you know, 10 to 15 years ago in my career where like everything I was doing had me fired up and like nothing phases me now. I don't know why, but like the time, the time away refilled my tank. And so um, when I have a bad day, I just feel super resilient to it now. And so when I see the headlines around me of so-and-so is burnt out or so-and-so stepping away, I'm like, it, it, I remember what they were going through, but I, I did what I needed to do to kind of get into a more resilient space. Yeah. D David, you've had 20 plus years as opposed to when you had 10 plus years. Do you care about different things now? You know, I, I feel as though earlier in my career, I, I was a little bit more passionate about pet projects things that like I was a novel concept of something I read in a, in an HBR article or TechCrunch of like, Oh yeah, I want to iterate on that. And just, you know, removed from what business leads were, I just had a little thing I was going to bring to Zendesk or a little, a, a little sort of like a personal branding of like, I'm going to be all about this thing here. And um, maybe just like, like sort of time experience, I don't know, wisdom, whatever you want to call it. I've, I've realized that, it's not about it's not about bringing your your like your personal passion projects to your work, but like deeply understanding what where is your company currently at, what are some of the sensibilities of the leaders, and some of them might not align with like things that I believe in, but but hopefully on balance most of them do, and I'm going to find a way for us to sort of make something work for us here on on our compensation approach, on our performance approach, on sort of the employee experience, things that I maybe would have never thought about bringing to Zendesk. We're going to go deep on these to make sure we're really aligned as leaders on them. So I'm a little bit less like my personal passion um, and more about finding what is unique about us and getting energized about that. It's going to be a different, it's going to be a different chapter and just embracing that. Um, so I think, I think the time away helped me reflect a little bit about like what's important in work and life and like also not trying to get all my meaning out of my work. Um, I've got a family, I've got kids, you know, like I can end my day having a really bad day at work and I'm much more likely to just close the laptop and it doesn't bother me. Whereas I think early in my career, a bad day at work would really bother me. Like if I had a tough conversation with the boss or, you know, like I just feel like we let someone down, I would, it would just bother me. I would bring it into the next conversation. I'd just be like, I wouldn't have the same mojo. And I'm, I'm much more short-term memory now. I can just forget something and move on. Like, okay, well, next up, like next project, next, next conversation. Gotta, gotta show up right here it's a really interesting take on like the pet projects versus actually like what the business needs one of the things that i've noticed over the course of the last call it five to seven years is the business need and employee expectation that like the gap actually feels like it's getting bigger i thought like you know this correction over the course of the last 18 months was going to narrow that gap I don't, I don't know if that's actually happening right now. I'm curious to see like what you're actually seeing and then how you're thinking about that. Yeah. The, the, the gap between like what employees are expecting and sort of like what employers are expecting. It, exactly. And what, it, I mean, what employers need to build real businesses. Yeah. I, you know, I think 
so just a, if we if we rewind the mode that we just come out of, so great resignation, super employee friendly market, um, companies companies really um, twisting in all sorts of different directions to give things to sort of relinquish control to sort of to trust more, work from anywhere, do all these things, have all that you want, and because they kind of had to to compete. Um, and then, you know, amidst that, not all sorts of great things were happening when you think about social isolation and like, like people, people burning out, parents like struggling. And so companies are trying to give more. It wasn't always translating to like better mental health or outcomes for employees. And then, you know, the great resignation, people moving in different directions and then a hard, a hard pivot, like, well, timeout VC money has gone away and now it's back to the employers. The employers are now employers are maybe like thinking, gosh, we screwed up. We're trying to pivot now hard to correct the other way. Return to office, layoffs, um, cutting things, you know. Um, and so, so the gap is still, the gap is still there. It's just kind of gone in a different direction of the gap. And uh, I deal with these questions. I'll deal with these questions on all hands. Like um, one question, like, are we having layoffs to like, you know, when am I going to get my pay increase? And sort of like this, like, whoa, the same question just right after the other, or this question right after that question. And um, there's this dichotomy, I think, for employees also. The gap, I think, is is increasing. And where I see it is, like, employers maybe sometimes operating from a mode of fear of, like, we've given away some things. I'm fearful of the headwinds. I'm fearful of the economy. And, like, I'm just kind of going to react to, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do what others are doing. I'm looking to fellow, fellow co-founders. I'm going to do what they're doing. I'm just going to play it safe. And I think you have to continue to sort of bring leaders together to talk about how are we going to create a high performing workplace? Let's not, let's try and block out all the noise. How are we going to create a high performing workplace? How are we going to create execution and like a, like a humming machine? How are we going to do that? Is that about returning to the office or is it about other things? Like what is the data telling us in our survey results? It's people are misunderstanding the strategy. We got to somehow fix communication internally. We got to create a beat of communication from leaders to mid-level managers down to employers, down to employees and, and create, um, create more sort of beats that, that can translate to wins that sort of like start to perpetuate in terms of like people are seeing what we're doing is working. We can block out noise internal, externally. What we're doing is working. And there's a there's there's a beat there and it's starting to feel good and it's starting to translate to later things like incentives or things that we can kind of be, give back to the workforce that are that are earned, that are like earned as opposed to previously I was I was beholden to give you these things. And then I felt beholden to take them away. And now we're giving them back because they've been earned. So the the divergence is something I've seen and felt, too, especially the la over the last two to three years. It's just really difficult you know, to get everyone on that same page four years ago was kind of like the market's good. People are making money. Everyone was kind of rising tide lifts all boats happy for the most part. Ha I have a hypothesis and I wanted to, to ask you if you'd agree and advice for the audience that the generational differences has created a lot of different viewpoints, reactions, points of view preferences on what employees think employers should be doing, shouldn't be doing, understanding this phenomenon that's going on in the market, because many have never seen it before, right? So I, I, my question is, do you agree there is just deviations of different generations now all put together going through this? And what, what are some tips on how to get all those folks coalesced? Yeah, we, um, I was just in an event where we talked about this, and we talked about 
you know, is the generation entering the workforce a me generation or is it a we generation or are we just misunderstanding it? Like, you know, one generation is misunderstanding what generation entering the workforce wants. And so we had we had people from each generation in this in this in this meeting talking about this. And what we acknowledged was there's definitely something going on around isolation and individualism that can even be translated to performance reviews. Performance reviews exacerbate individualism. They don't, they don't perpetuate team-based sort of community building. And I think for people leaders, you got to recognize we're just coming out of a mode where like there was a lot of um, all for one, you know, like, like I'm all, I'm all about myself. And what we need to be doing is, is like team building and community building. And the generation entering the workforce actually wants that. So they don't want, they don't want to be alone. That, and, and so like one, one of uh, the, these individuals in, the, in, the, in this team said like, you know what, you would think that you would, you would read data that says the generation entering the workforce wants to be able to work from anywhere. They want to be left alone. They don't want to, they want to, don't want to interact with others. And when we have opened up the offices optionally, this person sharing this anecdote, it was a generation that was entering the workforce that wanted to be around others. They wanted to be, they wanted, they want a community and they want their employer to create a community that is like, that is worth joining. And that's very different than sort of individualism and isolation. Um, so I think we misunderstand each other. Agree. I had an employee tell me just this last year, I said, you know, we want the same thing that they, right. They want it's just, we don't want to be told when and how and where. We literally want it. We just don't want to be told exactly prescriptively what to do. Super interesting. You you mentioned performance and I want to spend some time on performance with you. Right now, I'm hearing from founders that like performance is under the biggest microscope that they've ever seen. Uh, They care deeply about high performing cultures, um, making sure that everyone in the company is, is performing at a high level. Uh, and given now that like layoffs are still like really like the talk of Silicon Valley and, and companies are still doing a lot of cuts. And I think really underneath those cuts are like perform is performance management that hadn't been happening for a couple of years. What's your take on like, how do you measure the success of an employee? Like what is high performance to you? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think you can. I think you can create different definitions around it. You could say, you know, are you meeting expectations, occasionally exceeding it, and that's like solid. You could say you're exceeding expectations because you're delivering some impact that was not expected, um, and then you're not meeting expectations. I think you can define it different ways. I mean, you know, Kelly's certainly seen this. So like, you know, we just sort of go back and forth, like we wordsmith, you know, language, and where where a lot of I think where a lot of the muscle building around performance management is in particularly early stage companies that are building a muscle around this and we're getting more mature is around calibration and alignment and sort of honesty, like honesty internal, like, you know, being able to talk um, specifically amongst each other on our teams or when we're seeing high performance, when we're seeing low performance and like what is happening there and depersonalizing it. And so usually um, I'd say early stage companies are not good at Number one, they probably don't have a great definition. So like the table stakes to get a definition, but then they're not great at, at calibration and, and alignment and talking about it openly in a way where it's not going to offend everyone to talk about it, to find ways to sort of like, hey, that was great. Why was it great? What was the impact that it had? That was not great. What is at the root of that? And I think um, if, if for leaders, if I'm a founder or if I have a leadership team and like there's an outcome that's positive for this, it's not having a spreadsheet that is that is 
you know, all the ratings at any given time and we see it and we have an action item. I remember dealing with a founder whose, whose goal was to have a rating so that there's an action off to the right. So we know if we're letting this person go or they're going on a performance plan or we're promoting them or whatever. And like, I don't think that's your, that's your outcome. Ultimately, your outcome is something that I think a lot of companies don't think about in performance cycles, which is the team. So perform, performance reviews for individuals has a value for the individual so that I know I'm like, I get, I'm clear on where I stand. It's not a mystery anymore. And like between me and my boss, we've broken the, we've broken through the honesty barrier and like, okay, I get it. I disagree with it, but I, I get it now. And so I know what's being asked of me. I can choose to stay here, be part of that or not. Um, leaders then can kind of calibrate and say, oh, I see where individual performance, I see, I see what that means in high performance, but ultimately you launch a product, you know, you change a service, you know, you, you sort of derive revenue, you derive like margin performance through teams, through the effectiveness of teams. And we could go through an entire performance cycles where the team-based view of performance is totally obfuscated. So we said this team is, is like, you know, four of these five individuals are high performers, but the view of that team is the complete opposite. That's a dysfunctional team. And like, yeah, those are all rock stars, but I don't get anything I need from this team. And like, I see your dilemma there, you know, that you've got some, some high performers. It's like, I have a, I have an orchestra of, these are all like virtuoso soloists and, but I need them to perform as a, as an orchestra. Then I need them to make music together or these, these individual sports athletes, these baseball players are like, wow, they're phenomenal, but they're horrible as a team. And so I think founders need to come out of performance cycles or, or leaders need to come out of performance cycles with increasingly a, a view of the team performance. And, and I think that's like really um, uh, not done well in individual performance views. You have to have a completely different conversation. You could literally, like you could like, let's stack rank our teams. We're the high performing teams of this company. We're the low performing teams of this company. And why, what's at the root of that? Is that the leader? Is that something they're not set up for success? They're not positioned well. And we can make those adjustments that has much greater impact to the organization than just, you know, making sure we have performance reviews in place for everyone. Have you done that? Like, have you, have you tactically like started at the team level, like with, as it relates to your performance cycles and how you run them, like when you're thinking around, okay, like let's do calibration, let's calibrate on the team before we calibrate on the individuals? Like, how does that tactically work? And do people get it? Like, I mean, I, I, I'm having a little bit of a hive thinking about wrapping middle management's heads around this concept, which is makes total sense, but curious on how you work through that. Yeah, I've done it probably the past past two companies. Um, and I'll talk about like Eventbrite. We, um, we showed a difference of the percentage of high performers, like this team over here has the highest percentage of high performers. This team over here has the like uh, um, lowest percentage of high performers. So the highest percentage of low, of high, highest percentage of low performers, highest percentage of high performers. And then we asked the executive team, is this right in terms of these teams? Like the team, like your view of these teams, that's the high performing team. That's the low performing team. Like, no, it's completely opposite. No, like that's, that manager over there is being honest. They're being way too honest. That is not a low performing team. I'm surprised that that is, that's the team that shows up as our lowest performing team, just because the manager has, has marked a lot of their individuals as not performing or they're, or they're very, they've kept a, they've kept a very high bar for high performance. That's, that's not accurate. That's not an accurate view of, of our teams. And that's not an accurate view of our high performing teams. That's, and, and so what happens from there? There's a sort of message back to the leader of like timeout, there's, there's a, there's something not right here. 
you can't come to this, you can't come out of this cycle with like that view of your team-based performance because that's not the perspective of your team. And there's this light bulb moment of like, oh, so that's not showing up well then to the next level, right? So I'm not showing up well as saying all these individuals are high-performing. I didn't realize that's the perspective of my team. No one's debating me that those individuals are great. I admit, they don't even know. They don't even know some of these individuals. But my view has now been challenged of my team just because we had that conversation. Um, so then you could do it. You could do it without the data. You could do when we did it. My last company, we stack rank the teams. We said, where are the low performing teams or the high performing teams, independent of what the manager said. And then that was a, an output back to those leaders of, hey, just so you know, your, your team is viewed as one of the highest performing teams in the company. Just so you know, your team is viewed as one of the lowest performing individuals, the uh, lowest performing teams in the company. And then what does that do for the leader going through the cycle? Like, I need to make some changes. I need to make some changes that are not just, I need to deliver a tough message to you. I might need to make some like organizational changes. And, and then that starts to unlock a lot more in my experience than just, okay, we got through a performance cycle. Hey everyone, we'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey everybody, your co-host Nolan here. High performance and great culture should never be at odds. They're better together. With Lattice People Management Platform, companies efficiently run people programs that create enviable cultures where employees want to do their best work. Serving thousands of customers of all sizes globally, Lattice helps everyone work better together. Learn why companies from Slack to the LA Dodgers choose Lattice. Visit Lattice.com slash HR Heretics today. That's Lattice, L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com. Have you ever had a negative experience hiring an executive? I certainly did at Carta and DoorDash, and that's why I started Continuum, the modern AI-powered executive search firm. Continuum connects executives and senior operators to venture-backed tech companies for fractional and full-time roles. You could post any executive-level role to Continuum's marketplace and search through our database of world-class experienced leaders. Continuum will intelligently surface your opportunity to relevant operators. They'll express interest and show up in your inbox. It's like magic. There's no platform fee or hidden cost. You only pay the person you hire and you can cancel at any time. If you're thinking about hiring an exec in the middle of a search right now, or don't know how to solve a problem, I get it. Scaling is hard. Companies like Athletic Greens, Weights and Biases, Masari, and more than 100 other tech companies have turned to Continuum for help solving their people ops, go-to-market, engineering, and finance challenges. So check out Continuum in the description below. Ping me on LinkedIn if you have any questions or head to joincontinuum.com. So tough economy right now. Efficiency is the, right, the bottom line is the new top line in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of cultures are being now called soft cultures right? If you're trying to save money, the first thing you do is crack down on, on, on the folks that aren't, aren't doing well. And so that's forced a lot of companies to want to be, have to be more transparent, right? If they're, if they're turning out the juice on their performance management systems now, based on the macro, maybe they didn't even have one before. It's forcing them to now talk about this new thing and be more transparent with their practices in the organizations. What advice do you have for folks listening around that, what are the core elements? If you're going to be transparent, you know, you can't boil the ocean and go from zero to a hundred. What do you be transparent about, right? How do you start to talk to the company about this? If you really haven't been doing it openly the past two or three years. Uh, there's a quote um, from the pandemic. I remember, I forget who said it, but the job of a leader through uncertain times is to add more truth in the world. And, and so truth is not, 
is not spinning. Truth is, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. And so I've seen this multiple times of startups where you get out of an all hands and it's like the feeling is like, things are great. And it's like, how, what happened? Why did we just, we blew that messaging? Things are not great. Like we just, we went through a whole all hands and we gave this rosy picture and okay, I don't want to freak people out. I want to give them information, the right information, the right people at the right time with the right context. I need to make sure you understand where the problems are in the company and, and who's working on it so you can support those individuals. And if we don't have a solution to this yet, you at least are aware that this is a big problem for us. And over here, we're seeing gains. Here's, here's the wins. And we keep a consistent scorecard. So we're not sort of creating a new scorecard every month and every all hands of like, oh, this is important now. And then what about that last thing that we said was important? So, um, so what you know and what you don't know. So truth is what you know, what you don't know. Um, keep it as, as simple as possible. Um, right information to the right time, right people at the right time with the right context. So it's not about sort of I'm going to open source all Google Docs at the company and like you get to see all the sort of, you know, the, the gnarly stuff because that's just going to dis disrupt people and make them unnecessarily um, worried. Um, in, and I think you have to normalize some some topics, normalize and sort of destigmatize some topics that might freak people out. So we have to normalize like some terms that maybe previously, like we didn't use those terms. We didn't use sort of like, we have to perform at a high level. You know, we didn't talk about how our, our performance cycle and our comp cycle is really about rewarding high performance. It sounded like it was rewards for everyone. And now we're saying, we're saying something different. And we got to normalize some of that language, which feels like maybe a little bit less soft. Maybe it feels like a little bit more like it's going to be hard. We're going to normalize it's going to be hard. We think there's rewards for it. Um, we're going to normalize the, the scorecard that we use. And so it's more predictable and, um, and treat people like adults. Um, so on the, on the normalization front. So like, are you normalizing like terminating employees after performance cycles? Like, is that one of the things that you're trying to normalize? I think it's already pretty well understood, but I think it's less about sort of normalizing that that could happen. Cause I think that probably feels like holding something over someone's heads. Um, like that could happen, that could happen. But what we want to make sure people know in the performance, like, like I've just got out of these conversations, we want you to know where you're standing relative to expectation. We want it to be absolutely clear. You know, you know what's expected of you. Because sometimes, you know, in startup, lang startup land with like a green manager, I'm kind of like I'm working my way through this. I don't really know the right language to use. It just gets totally unclear. It gets totally unclear. Am I doing well? Am I doing not doing well? I mean, it can get, it can get unclear in all hands. Like, whoa, we didn't like we didn't share some stuff we should have shared there. And so the normalization is more of the language. So you just know that, like, I'm just going to be really honest with you. You're doing well on this. You're not doing well on that. I don't think it's going great. So, but here's what you can do. Here's what you can do to improve things. And, um, and that feels like a shift to me, like in some prior companies, like in the great resignation, I don't think that, that the performance cycle was maybe in some companies a little bit more about, I want to make sure you feel good. You're motivated, you know, you're motivated to just stay here, you know? Yeah. Quick, really quick on that. I wanted to, I, I've talked to a few founders and a few peers, right? Chief people officers that have kind of said, this this macro has given us a little bit of license to be a bit tougher and to send harder messages than previously, right? In the spirit of retention and keeping you happy and all these things. So do you think the pendulum has shifted a bit a bit on this side? And what do, what do you think about that? Um, you know, like I think the sort of like 
finding your inner Elon or whatever it is probably not the mode for most founders. Like you got to find the voice that works for you. That is like really direct and clear. Um, the license to sort of take things away or the license to, you know, like it, it's, it's, if it's going to make you a fundamentally different person than what's your strong suit, like strength-based leadership development is like, you have a certain strength. You should like let that shine at the workplace. If your if your strength is not sort of margin performance, but that's your CFO's strength, let them own that conversation. Let like, let them do that. And so I, th I think founders need to be kind of careful about sort of, you know, um, it's, I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to use this to be a very different person. Um, the reality is, most people are going to like unlock higher levels of performance. Number one, by knowing what's expected of me so that I can, I can overachieve. So I know what's expected of me. So, so now I know, I know what sort of what I have an idea. I have an idea on something. I'm going to go push this idea. I'm going to try and drive this impact. And my discretionary output is coming from some intrinsic motivation. And so it, it's much more likely that for many people, it's going to have to come from within. I just know what's expected. I mean, my boss has been clear, but if you as a manager know what someone's motivators are, you probably know more of what to do, button buttons to push to help that person get to the next level of performance versus, you know, being hard with them or versus, you know, taking something away versus being sort of strict or something, you know, which is unlikely to, to create some game changing performance for your company. Yeah, I, I agree. And the consistency is going to be important, right? So the last thing I'll say, and I'll let Nolan shift us, but in good times or bad, right, that adventure, that brand of that founder, that brand of that CPO, right? I mean, you're very well known for empathy and holistic. I mean, that will follow you and the market will go back up at some point. So that thrash is very dangerous. And to think through that for the long term is important. Yeah, just to piggyback off that, I feel like a lot of founders right now are forgetting that their recruiting brand is always at stake. And like, even though you may not be hiring right now, if your business does well, you will start hiring again. And I think people have very long memories on some of these topics, which like actually kind of brings me over to comp. So we've been talking about performance and I just want to get your take on like tying comp to performance in today's world. Um, I think there's a lot of companies right now who are surprised that the comp data has not dropped as much as they would have expected. Um, Carta just put out a bunch of data recently. It does look like base salaries have come down a little bit. Uh, equity as it relates to early stage companies is down pretty significantly, which I think is, is somewhat surprising. How are you thinking about comp and how are you advising on compensation right now? So our, our compensation strategy really um, is about almost entirely allocating it to high performance I don't know if that's right for every company. And it's like, I, I think every all hands I've had to answer this question, um, you know, the past, past two all hands, past two or three, I think it's unique because I think in general, there's, um, there's a sort of like everyone gets everything approach. Um, and like, we're, we're kind of slightly sort of amending it, but like, we want to make everyone happy. And um, I think uh, for us at least, we have, um, we have a very difficult path that we've just been on. We have like really meaningful growth that we think is coming up. We think that there's a there's a small like cohort of, of individuals in the company that are having like outsized impact. We want to reward them. Like we know that in general, merit cycles have been you get three percent, and if you're crushing it, you get four and a half percent. And it's like what 
there's nothing here that you're doing anything for anyone, you know, that it is anything to do with a performance reward for people. And so um, at least for us right now, um, for, you know, we'll see how it happens. We'll see how it all pans out. We're trying to really reward high performance uh, for people having outsized impact on a company. It's kind of, you know, like if you read Instacart's S1, it's, it's kind of, that's the spirit of it. And it's the spirit of what many public companies try and tell their shareholders, but we're, we're, we're trying to make it really happen like in a, in a real way. So, and I don't know if that's right. Like how aggressive, yeah. Like how, how, like what, like how, like what percentage of the population is considered a high performer? And are you saying that like, if you're just meeting expectations, you should not expect an increase? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like, then this is like a, whoa, like moment, I think for many people, but like our average tenure is about a year. Um, many of us are still learning in our jobs, you know, like I haven't hit a year yet. I'm not expecting anything. Um, you know, many early stage startups, like how much track record have you built at the company? What have you been able to do so far? You know, and so your experience in perform in a performance cycle is about learning how you're doing. What's expected of me? What could crushing it really look like? And so I, I want to make sure you're not expecting anything. I, the the idea, idea of battling entitlements at the company um, or any, any startup, it's, it's out there. You know, your entitlement is out there. And so what should I expect? Don't expect anything. Don't expect anything. Expect that you're going to learn yeah. how you're doing. And there's a path for you. We believe everyone can crush it. We believe we're, you're not going to be here if we don't think that you have the like you know potential to actually perform at a little bit higher level. You get to this. Everyone can get to exceeding performance level. And so it might be year one. It might be year two. It might, it might be at some point. And when you when you do it, we want it to be really meaningful. And so you so you've you've been rewarded. And you've, we we've learned. You've learned what that high performance is like. And so, yeah. So if you're meeting expectations, you're, you're getting a good feedback session with your boss. I think that is, that is new. And if people don't like it, they can vote with their feet. I, I'm telling you that, that I, this is HR heretics is the title of this podcast. That, that is something that is, I think shifted very quickly, like literally within a cycle um, this year is that meets is the new nothing. Not that you're bad, and that's a that's a nuanced thing to, to talk about. That meets isn't bad, but don't expect it. And I agree with it, but that is new. So give give me one click deeper here. I'm fascinated by this topic. So say we identify the top performers, um, and say a, a manager has two or three on their team. How much discretion are you giving that manager to like, say like, you know, do they have, do they have a slush fund that they, that they can allocate however they wish? Or is it like, Hey, the model produces like this amount of increase for each person and you lock them in. Like, how do you guys think about discretion versus the model? We're, we're, we're giving the judgment to, to the manager and then their, their, their boss kind of aligns with them. Uh, you know, like it, it, there could be a little bit of things that are thrown out of whack on internal parity, but like in general, we're, we're giving them, there's not a budget. So it's not a use it or lose it. It's a sort of like, we, we say, Hey, we think this is what meaningful means. It's a lot more than an average, you know, salary increase year over year, average startup salary budget. It's a lot more than that. And here's, here's, here's what we would recommend. And it's a starting point. Um, but we allow them to plug it in and there's not a budget. There's not a sort of like, oh, I don't have enough dollars for this high performer over here. It's a, it's, it's plug in. Um, on the comms. So, right. So like disproportionately rewarding top performers, I think is like what founders have been talking about and asking for. And it sounds like you guys are actually starting to deliver that. How do you make sure that the manager is delivering the right message 
to that top performer to make sure that they feel it. Cause it's one thing to say like, Hey, we're doing this. It's a whole other thing to be in the seat receiving it. Like, how do you make sure that they know that they're, that, that they're a top performer? There's a couple different touch points. I think there's the calibration touch point. Um, there is hearing it from other leaders. Like, here's the impact. We ask, we ask for clarity when you go through this calibration and, we're, and we sort of pull out a few high performers. What was the impact? What did they do? And then sometimes when it feels like, it sounds like you're just saying they worked hard, but I don't understand what the impact was. I No doubt they worked hard, but I don't know if that's high performance. Ah, okay, that's good clarification. This person over here had a game-changing effect on on sales funnel conversion. Like they they did they shipped this thing and no one asked them to do that. And like that's kind of what we want to see, right? We want to see people sort of leaning in and sort of fixing the problems that we have. And like no one asked them to do it. That's game-changing impact. And so then they get to hear that in the in the feedback cycle from their other from their other leaders from their next level boss. But the business partners, so I, look, I have a couple of really amazing business partners who are digging into this. They're reading it. They're reading the feedback. They're sitting down. They're sitting down to coach more junior managers. It's it's a huge role for the business partner. However many you have, it's a huge role for them. And I'm I'm I sort of you know toot my own horn to my business partners. I got a couple of really good business partners who who get this part of their their impact with their teams they support. Yeah, we we literally had for that top echelon, the CEO wrap their arms around these people. It could be a, literally a note to their house or an email or an in-person or a 15-minute Zoom, um, a- anything to kind of come over the top and piggyback on that great feedback. Um, that, that, that subjective qualitative touch was something that it's, it was really important. So I, I love that. One of the things that I learned um, when I was at Google, and it was kind of like the on the hush-hush streets, is that there used to be this notion of a founder grant. And so like, like for the, the really top decile performers, not only would they get like all the comp and the praise, but then they'd get like a specific grant that was from the founders, like Larry and Sergey had signed off on. That was obviously like, you know, huge and that made them feel great. But also the notion that it can't like Larry and Sergey signed off on this thing. And so I, I love that idea of like making those people feel super special because that's how you tuck them in. And that's how you continue to get the type of performance from them. And then hopefully from everyone else, they see that and they're like, I want to be like that person. Let's transition into advice for founders. So one of the questions Kelly and I get all the time from founders is around chief people officers. Founders don't know what to expect. And so like, I'm curious from your lens, how do you assess a people leader. Um, yeah, I think um, I think about a people leader is doing really well if they're balancing three things, which is um, strategy, execution, and relationships. And um, I think some leaders, some people leaders, um, have a, maybe have a brand of, or they have like their strength is in one of those. Um, they are a people person. And so maybe the founder has decided I'm putting you in that role because you've shown the greatest knack at our culture and insight on that. And um, however, they struggle to sort of think about the strategy is uh, for people at this stage in our, in our maturation of the company and how the pieces have to fit together to pull that strategy off. Um, relationships part. Uh, so the strategy, relationship and, and execution. Execution is, can I actually do the work in, involved in the strategy? Do I know how to actually um, stagger these? How do, I, how do I prioritize these things so we can do these effectively? 
And so I think you're trying to assess your people leader. Are they right for you at this stage of your company um, in terms of their competency of being able to do all three things and, and knowing when to switch? I might have to start with building trust. So that's relationships orientation. I'm going to start my time now with the company on building trust and, and sort of stakeholder, you know, kind of like inputs, like, you know, kind of do a roadshow, understand what are different needs, what is, what is the conflict, what is sort of different opinions that are diverging um, on the people team right now and kind of what we're doing. Build that trust, then move into um, execution on near-term stuff before I get to the strategy level I need to get, I need to execute on the performance cycle and the comp cycle just to build some of the trust from the leaders who've been burned by their people leader in the past. And then finally, I can enter this strategy conversation. I can sort of talk about what I think our next year plan should be, what some big things some big rocks that we should be pulling off and how those are going to have to be done with the leadership team, as opposed to just me in, in isolation. Um, so I, I think those, I think a good people leader has to balance all three things. Um, and much of it is about co-ownership of people and culture with the rest of the leadership team, as opposed to owning it fully. And um, that's another thing that I think is important for, for a good people leader. Yeah. David, you just said burned by the people leader in the past, right? And I'm not saying this is the case for every company, but it does happen. Um, what, what, are the, what are the main situations you've seen when a new people leader is coming in to kind of clean up a mess, what, what, what has usually happened? What is underneath that? And how does that new people leader turn that ship around? If that makes sense. Where do people leaders fail? Like, where do you see people leaders fail? And then how, like, if you are coming in, how do you get that, that ship back on the right track? And what do you hear? Oh, the, the other people leader did this or didn't do this. I mean, what, what are those big buckets of, of things that go wrong? Um, I, when I when I was um, when I started talking with some founders, um, it was uh, probably about last summer when I was coming off my my sabbatical. I started talk. I, I was wound up talking with a lot of different founders, and and half of them were the situation of the prior people leader didn't work out. You know, uh, for whatever reason, um, they were exited. You know, or they they left, and it was not a good situation or whatever. Um, a, a lot of it was just a misalignment. Um, some some misalignment and where they were spending our time and where we were seeing the impact. Um, a misalignment around um, also what we wanted from our people leader. So this person was comfortable being behind the scenes and like not being an open and sort of un- upfront people leader. They didn't want to, they didn't want any airtime at the all hands. They didn't want to spend time, you know, they were in the office, but they didn't want to spend time with people. So there was a disconnection. The misalignment was disconnection with the workforce. The misalignment was disconnection with the board. The misalignment was they really had the trust of the employees, but but they just could not get aligned with what we wanted as an executive team. And so misalignment is usually the core of it. And sort of like they had some alignment on something, but there was something else there that was broken. And it's tough. It's tough for people leaders because you're balancing all these different interests. How do I have trust and respect and credibility with the employees but not, but not be sort of seen as like at odds with the executive team. How do I have trust line with the executive team, but, but not be seen as just a company person, you know? And like, I'm not sort of the rest of the, like the rest of the workforce don't, like I don't get them, you know? And so that's a balancing act um, that at the root of it, some level of misalignment was the issue for the people leader who was no longer there. 
I, I could not agree more. I mean, at this point, I talk to founders a lot and it's, it's less about whether, whether that HR leader is good or bad functionally. It's more of the fit with that organization, right? It kind of aching us all to Crayola crayons and we're all crayons. There's different colors. You got to find the right color that fits that culture. Otherwise it's just going to miss. So I agree with you that it is hard. David, what, what do you do to stay aligned? Uh, Cause you mentioned the competing interests. So like, Typically, like the founder has, you know, some things, the employees have a lot of things, the board has something, the leadership team has other things. Like there are so many parties to navigate as a chief people officer. Like how do you, how do you make sure that you're in alignment with all of those competing interests? And stay sane. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So, so number one, it's not about, it's not about boiling it down to something that like no one would disagree with, Right. It's not about it's not about meeting everyone's needs all all at the same time, um, but there is some level of of trust. So I, I need to be um, trust and probably trust and respect. Um, you you might not might not like, like what I'm focusing on, but I trust it because you've been highly communicative with us. I I, I respect it because you can share the context, you can share the why. Why are we doing this now? Why are we not doing this now? And so that trust and respect is, the, I mean, the, the core of that is a relationship that you that you can't build with everyone in the company, but that I can get out there. I can get out there as much as I possibly can. So when I go to Tel Aviv, you know, would you ask me anything? I really want people to ask me all the tough questions and I, I want to not dodge any questions. Um, I want to be able to spend time with, you know, whoever is influential in the office who like gets the culture. I want to go out and ask them questions. I want to learn from them. I want to be, I want to be lean with curiosity. Um, I don't think that I'm going to win any, um, win any sort of trust and respect competitions by just being didactic. I really need to ask questions and root out and make sure I understand what's going on in the workforce. You get some of that through engagement survey results. You get a lot of that through conversations and so I think in moments in my career where I feel like I have been disconnected, like I've been missing something because I've been too comfortable with my team. It's been like I haven't gotten out there. I haven't talked with leaders. I haven't sought out the people who oppose the people team or sought out the people who are critics of the people team, sought out like sought out the dysfunction and really immersed myself in it. So I try and run to I try and run to the tough stuff, you know, wherever it's happening in the company and, 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 and understand it so that then I can speak to it credibly. This is why we're not doing this now. This is why we are doing this now. Um, so that why, that context, I think. Um, I, I, had a, I had a good a business partner show up, told me the other day, I was talking through our compensation cycle approach. She's like, you missed the why. Like, all this is good stuff, but there should have just been a slide on the why. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Um, thank you for calling that out. So anyways. I, I love the idea of running towards the the folks that are are not in agreement with your philosophy or your strategy or or made feel like a little bit slighted in some way it's one of my bigger learnings being in the role is that it's so easy to to anchor on the people that agree with you and that see your way of the world but actually like it's it's less about winning them over and more about like making sure that they feel heard and understand why we are doing things I, if i could go back i think that that's probably one of my biggest regrets in my last job is that I didn't spend enough time with the people who disagreed with our approach and philosophy because it's just, it feels way safer to hang out with the people that agree with us. Yeah. And to your point on the why it's, it's just talking to them like a human, 
right? Like, I don't care if it's me to an SDR or me to a board member. Again, that that reputation, that consistency of I'm going to just talk to you simple. Here's why. Here's why not. You might not like this, but here's the deal. And and that that reputation spreads like wildfire, especially with the detractors, right? You You connect with a detractor, they're going to tell 50 people versus a promoter, they're going to maybe tell five. So could not agree more with both of you. And I, I think what, another thing that's, I think that's been particularly helpful for me in my current stint is I've just been really deeply curious about the business, how it works, like immerse myself, you know, the cliche is like, be a business leader first and, you know, sort of your people strategy second, like understand what the business needs are, like hugely helpful for me. And like earlier in my career, I, like some, some, like the SDR function, sales, sales funnel conversion performance, whatever, like just eyes glaze over earlier in my career. And now like, I'm super curious about it and I can speak credibly to the current state of the business. Cause I can quickly connect to people stuff in terms of why back to the business. Anyways. Do you have advice for those folks that are trying to get into that number one seat for the first time and having a hard time doing it? I'm literally talking to three right now that are banging their head against the wall because they want the CPO role. And all they're hearing is we want someone who's done it before. Um, part of what I would say is, um, one of my most miserable experiences in my career was my first head of people role. Um, it's, it's no longer even on my, my resume. I just made a huge mistake. I thought I wanted something for a particular reason. And I, I just like, it wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted at all. And so I think that there's a desire early on. I got, I need that top job. I need this for some reason. And, um, in terms, in terms of like the patience to get there in the right, in the right situation with the right person who's going to grow you. Cause like when you're, when you're first time head of people, you're still learning. And the reality is many CEOs don't have time to develop you. Like, like, like CEOs are sometimes the worst bosses. When you think about like, I'm going to develop you in my career. I want, I want a boss who's going to develop me and like, give me feedback and like, uh, uh-uh, you're not gonna, you're, like the CEO doesn't have time for that. And so when I deeply want that as my sort of career milestone, I got to be ahead of people. That might be the last time you're going to get the type of feedback that you want to get. And so, you know, in terms of your patience to sort of like that right situation is going to manifest itself at the right time. Um, I think some of the best people leaders I know took them a while. It took them a while to get to that job. And, that, and suddenly the first job was CPO of an amazing company. And they were in for 20 years doing something underneath someone else. And now they're doing phenomenally. Whereas, you know, I was itching at it like 10 years in, I need to get it. I'm like eight, 10 years in my career. I need this job. And like, and then I flounder and then I'm like, man, I wish I, I don't have the, I don't have the development experience. Anymore. I don't have the person developing me anymore. I kind of want to get back to that. I've had that conversation where someone's like, I think I need to go back to a number two job. I need to go back to someone. I need to go under a CPO at a public company who's going to develop me because I'm missing so much. So, um, you know, that might not be the answer that, that they would want to hear, but I would, I would encourage like, you know, patience and just sort of like find that mode and like, you know, like wait for the perfect opportunity to, to surface. And, and David, when you are in the top job, as you are right now, as you mentioned, like most CEOs aren't great bosses. Like I'm, I'm terrible. I know that I've experienced that in the past. Like you just don't learn, you, you're not learning about your craft from the CEO. How do you continue to learn? Like what, what are your resources? What are you doing? Like, how do you continue to stay sharp in your game? You know, I, I think um, at this point in my career, a lot of the fun and a lot of the sort of like, man, every day is a new learning 
is seeing how the executive team works together along with the board and what is the board focusing on and um, how do we get through this board meeting in a way that creates better alignment on the business itself? What are the pieces here? What must be true of talent for us to get to that place in that, that sort of fiscal year plan uh, six months from now? Um, a lot of it is that executive team dynamics, um, working with founders, working with the board, um, and then the business plan. How can I have a big impact on the business plan? I think I, I think I kind of know we'll get through this performance cycle stuff. We'll get through this engagement survey stuff. Like I've done that before, but how are we going to make the business work um, on, on, you know, relative to all things, people and talent, constantly learning on that, no shortage of learnings. Last question for you, David, is how you stay aligned with the founder. Um, you've worked for generational founders. Uh, founders, I, I, I think, are all over the place generally. I am now one. Uh, we have a million things going on in our minds. Oftentimes that, you know, we get information, uh, I think, very quickly that the chief people officer doesn't get just from their seat and operating internally with the founder operating a lot of externally. How do you stay aligned with founders? Um. That's a good question. I think part of it was um, selecting out in the interview process. I think those who are just I probably was not going to just wasn't going to work. You know, um, probably half the battle there is like, are we like when times are tough? Do I feel as though that we'll be able to work through stuff like we, we communicate in a way where we understand each other? Like there's a respect there. We kind of know what we're what we're going to be looking for from each other. There's there's alignment there as much as possible at the beginning. I've been part. I've been I've been paired with a founder in the past where I just realized almost immediately I made a mistake, and um, it was going to be intensely hard to get alignment around the initiatives and like I just like wow I just I misread this person, and so I think with with um, Rami and Itai the founders uh, of Flare. I think I just spent enough quality time with them in the beginning. Like I got them. I got why they, why they care about the business. I got how they like to operate. I got like where they are going to spend their time or where they're not going to spend their time. Um, you know, as co-founders, what, what will I lean on this one for versus this thing over here? Um, and then as much as possible, meeting them with their communication style. Like I'll just, I'll give you one example early on. I my last company, we were trained to have a document for every possible change in the company, like almost like call it like a run of show document, any possible change. Like here's an org change. Here's the change over here. Um, it's just how they rolled at my prior company. And I quickly saw that there was a much more loose approach to planning on a big changes. You know, my current company, was just more and more startup, I guess. Um, and so I adapted, you know, I've tried to meet them where they're at on how they like to communicate and how they like to roll with things and how they like to keep things, certain things simple. Whereas my prior company, we complicated things. So, um, you know, but I, I was fortunate that I think I got a lot of it just from, from the way I approached the interview. So David, thanks so much for the time. I learned a ton from this. Uh, I know our listeners are going to love it too. Same. Thanks cool. so much, David. It's awesome. Thank you for having me. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.